Today is part four in our series, What is the Gospel? What is the Gospel? The Gospel is called good news because it addresses the most serious problem that you and I have as human beings. And that problem is simply this, and I've been sharing it throughout this series. God is holy and just, and we're not. And at the end of our life, we're going to stand before a just and holy God, and we're going to be judged by him. And we will be judged either on the basis of our own righteousness or lack thereof or the righteousness of another. If we are judged based on our own righteousness, we are in terrible, terrible trouble. Isaiah 64, 6 says, all our righteousness are like filthy Rags. Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, chapter 7, verse 20 says, For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. You see, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus lived a life of perfect righteousness, of perfect obedience to God, and he offered himself as a perfect sacrifice to satisfy the justice and the righteousness of Almighty God. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. The Apostle Paul, he writes to the, to the church there in Corinth, for our sake, for our sake, He made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is good news. Good news. For our sake. Put your name there. For Patrick's sake. Put your name there. For Dan's sake. For Ken's sake. This is a personal gospel. Romans chapter 3. Verses 21 through 26 says, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. Praise God, they were impossible to keep. You disobeyed one, you disobeyed them all. As was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago, We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, for everyone has sinned. Can we say everyone? We all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fear when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fear and just. And he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus Christ. What a beautiful, powerful portion of Scripture. 
When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, God ascribes the perfect righteousness of Christ to our account so that we become perfect in God's sight who is holy. For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow! This is amazing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Bible scholars call this imputed righteousness. To impute something is to ascribe or attribute something to someone. Not only is Christ's righteousness imputed to us through faith, but our sin was placed upon Christ. Think about that. That is how Christ paid our sin debt to God. He had no sin in himself, but had our sin placed upon him. So as he suffers on the cross, he is suffering the just penalty that our sin deserves. The punishment that Pat's sin deserves, Jesus took upon himself. And he paid the just penalty for my sin. Wow, and your sin as well. This gospel is powerful. That's why the apostle Paul penned to the church in Rome in Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. That's why the apostle Paul can say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. By having the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, we can be seen as sinless before a holy God as Jesus is sinless. That's a divine miracle, church. A divine miracle of grace. It's not our perfection, but Christ's perfection. And that's good news. And that's how God sees every child of God who's placed their faith and trust in the lordship of Jesus Christ. When God looks at those who are following Christ, he sees the holiness. He sees the perfection and righteousness of his son, our savior, Jesus Christ. And that's good news. That's why we can offer our worship to God today. That's why we can, we can go boldly. We can enter boldly into the throne room of almighty God because God does not see us in our sinfulness and our unrighteousness and our unholiness, but he sees us clothed in the righteousness of his son. I love to give this visual illustration. These glasses represent you and me, and when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, God no longer sees us in our unrighteousness. He doesn't see us in our sin. He sees us clothed in the righteousness, in the perfection, and holiness of his son. Someone shout, thank you, Jesus. This is life-changing. This is eternity-changing. It doesn't just impact us in the here and now, but forever. It's incredible. And the world needs to know this truth, 
They need to know the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul writing to the church in Corinth, he writes in his first letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not know? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I'm so thankful for the imputed righteousness of Christ. Without it, I would not be able to inherit the kingdom of God. Without it, you would not be able to inherit the kingdom of God. In order to understand, really grasp, and be transformed by the beauty, by by the grace, love, and power of the good news, we have to understand the bad news. In Romans chapter 11, verse 22, the text commands us to note not only the kindness, the goodness of God, but also his severity. And Paul writes, therefore consider the goodness and severity of God. We get a steady diet of grace and love and and forgiveness and, and mercy in our preaching and in our teaching. And these are all the kindness of God, and they should be heard, and they should be meditated on, and they should be believed and received by faith. The loving kindness of God is a phenomenal theme running throughout the entire Bible. But the apostle Paul didn't stop there. He, He gives a command. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. Paul says to note God's severity. Mark it down. Remember it. Consider it. But how many of us really do this? We consider the severity of God. How many of us really take the time to note it, to mark it, to remember it? To consider it. How many of us have considered the severity of God this week? We definitely remember his kindness, and we should, but what about his severity? We could say, look at the mercy of God and the wrath of God. Look at the tenderness of God and the toughness of God. Look at the salvation of God and the judgment of God. Look at the assistance of God and the opposition of God. Look at the friendship of God and the fierceness of God. Or we can focus on the mercy of God and the tenderness of God and the salvation of God and the assistance of God and the friendship of God. You see, if we look only at his gentler side, it will be bad for our faith. It's amazing how many times the Bible tells us to look. Consider the word behold. It occurs 1,275 times in the King James Version of the Bible. Where do you look? Where do we look to see the kindness and severity of God? Two places, if you're taking notes. Write this somewhere on your outline. Two places. The first is nature. The first is nature. We, we see the kindness of God. As the sun rises over the the calm water. And we see the severity of God when the storm clouds roll in. And the lightning and the thunder and the heavy winds and, and the heavy rains begin to blow and fall. We also see the 
kindness and severity of God. We see the severity of God in the Bible. You see, church, your faith is shaped by what you look at. If you look at the kindness and severity of God, the way they are woven together in the Bible, your faith will grow stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger as you persevere to the end. If you neglect the Bible, you will not see the severity of God and the kindness of God, the way God means for them to be seen by us. You will not understand them. You will misinterpret them. And probably you will fault God and criticize God for his severity and take his kindness for granted. These two are woven together throughout the scripture. It must be understood together and cannot be fully understood in grasp to the depth that God desires if looked upon individually. One would become hard towards God and one would take his kindness for granted. Father, I pray over these next few minutes that through the power of your spirit, you would speak through your servant. I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would just make your truth known to us in a very clear, um, life-changing way that your name would be glorified and everyone here would be built up, edified, and strengthened in their faith. And maybe some today would come to faith in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 28 through 31, Jesus warns and comforts his disciples. First, we see in, in verse 28 in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10, the severity of God. Let me read verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's the severity of God. That's a hard passage. That passage does not give me the warm fuzzies. In fact, I like to just skip over it. Are you with me? Oh, that's not in the Bible. That doesn't give me the warm fuzzies. And then the kindness of God is seen in, in, in later on as we continue to read verses 30 through 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the, to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And that's a little more harder, for, you know, to count than others. Uh, um. Do not fear, therefore you are of more value than any sparrows. Do not fear, therefore you are, are of more value than any sparrows. Kindness, the kindness of God. Think about that. Do not fear, therefore, for you are of more value than any sparrows. Put your name there. That's the kindness of God. It's as if Jesus is saying, seriously? (laughs) You're afraid of what people think of you more than you're afraid of me? You're afraid of what people can do to you rather than what I can do to you? You're more afraid of how people might perceive you than how I perceive you? This is the gospel's way of asking, are you seriously afraid of a kitten and and not a lion? (laughs) 
And what I mean here in this comparison is that it makes no sense to run up a tree afraid of a kitten while walking up to a lion and slapping it in its face. It makes no sense. We fear man while defying God. It makes no sense. We fear man while defying God. It makes no sense at all. God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In the Gospels, Jesus uses the word Gehenna as an illustration of hell. How many are familiar with the word? Several of you. It was a valley south of Jerusalem. It was the place where some of the ancient Israelites sacrificed their children to the Canaanite god Molech. And you can read about it in 2 Chronicles chapter 28. In later years, Gehenna continued to be a place used for burning trash from the city of Jerusalem, and many viewed it as cursed. It became a place where corpses of criminals and dead animals and all kinds of rubbish were thrown to be destroyed by fire. The Gehenna Valley was a place of burning sewage, burning flesh, and and burning garbage. You can almost picture the scene. Maggots and worms crawled through the waste and the smoke smelled strong and sickening. It was a filthy, disgusting, and repulsive place to the nose and eyes. You see, Gehenna presented such a vivid image that Jesus used it as a depiction of hell, a place of eternal torment where the fires never stop burning and the worms never stop crawling. In fact, Jesus said in in Mark 9, verses 47 and 48, and if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where their worms does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, now he's not saying go out and pluck your eye and, you know, verses before this one, he says cut off your hand. He's not saying cut off your hand. We all be handless. We all would be eyeless, wouldn't we, church? It's the severity of self-worship, self-glorying sin. It's serious. It's serious. And it keeps us from the kingdom of God. The occupants of hell are separated from God for all eternity. As a child, I used to hear more preaching on hell. We really don't hear preaching on hell anymore. One of our clearest pictures comes from a parable found in Luke chapter 16. Would you turn there, please? Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Church, this is an encouraging message. This is an encouraging message. In fact, God's word, every bit of it, every word is encouraging. It's meant to draw us to him and to build us up in our most precious and holy faith. This is an encouraging message. And I pray that you're encouraged by it today. Luke chapter 16, I'm going to read verses 19 through 26. 
Jesus shares this parable. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and feared and, and was scrumptiously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom to the rich man, also died and was buried. And being in torments in haze, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Wow. That's a pretty clear, vivid picture. This parable tells us a few things about life and the place of eternal separation from God. It is a place of, of constant torment, It's a a place of fire. It's a place of anguish. And once you're there, there's no getting out. It is eternal. The gulf, the chasm between heaven and hell is illustrated of the chasm or the gulf between God and us. He is glorious and we are not. He is holy and we are not. He is righteous and we are not. And the true gospel of Jesus Christ reveals these truths to every sinner. In this chasm, this gulf between God's total perfection and our total depravity deserves the the chasm, the gulf of stinking, smoldering Gehenna. You see, God's kindness and and God's severity both come from his perfect and holy self-sufficiency. But the chief difference between them, one is undeserved and the other deserved. God's kindness is undeserved. And this is so important that we understand this truth today. God's kindness, if you're taking notes, is undeserved. You can't deserve it. It is unearned. That's the point of it. Otherwise, Paul says in in Romans 11, 6, grace is no longer grace. If it's something that you can earn, it's no longer grace. Grace is a free gift given to someone who has not earned it and cannot earn it. But God's severity is deserved. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. All sinners work hard at sinning and deserve something for their work, for their sin. When you put in a good week's work, you expect to receive something at the end of the week, a paycheck. All sinners work hard at sinning and deserve something for their work, for their sin. 
We are deserving of the severity of God. And no one is exempt from this because Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so there's a wage to be paid that we deserve. Every single one of us, there's a wage to be paid. For the wages of sin is death. And since we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we are all due a wage. We deserve payment. We deserve something for our work. God's severity is deserved. And that's what we deserve. Now, let me tell you why understanding this is such a big deal. According to the scriptures, everything good and perfect is a gift from God. In fact, James chapter 1 verse 17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. So, hell, when said and done, is the absence of God's shalom. We talked about God's shalom last week. It's the absence of his kindness. Hell is the absence of anything we can think of that's good, that's right, that's comforting, that's joyous, that's happy, that's peaceful. It's a pretty terrifying place. Would we agree? Jesus says in Matthew 8, 12, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, the point is that if we are going to orient our worship around anything less than God, even things that God himself gives us to enjoy, and I wor- and, and, I, and, and worship something other than God, we are declaring our preference for the absence of God. This is called pride. It's self-glory. It's self-worship. And even a sliver of it deserves its end result, the place where God isn't. And let's be honest, nobody has just a sliver of Pride. Well, I guess I'll just speak for myself. If we don't understand and feel the weight of the severity of God and how we deserve it, we will never understand and feel the weight of God's kindness, God's grace, which we don't deserve. It's the kindness of God that leads us to true repentance, Paul writes. Romans 2, 4, the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Someone who says hell cannot be real Well, we can't all deserve it, even if it is real, because God is love. Is saying the holiness and glory of God aren't that big of a deal. To discount discount the enormity of God's severity as if we aren't really that bad and really deserve mostly kindness is to discount the enormity of God's holiness and rob him of his glory. Is this the approach we want to take? That hell for eternity is the wrong punishment for our sin and for falling short of the glory of God? If so, in essence, we say the punishment doesn't fit the crime because the crime isn't that big of a deal. Think about it. Now, some will view this as justifiable logic, but it's not. Let's call it what it really is. It's a case of refusal to be satisfied with the all-sufficiency of a holy and just God. That's what it really is. 
The correct response to the severity of God is not to dismiss it, but to rather repent of our self-righteousness, our self-worship, and worship God who is holy and just with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength, and nothing less. And there's a grace that helps us do that. How big and mighty and infinite and glorious is God That is the just response. We have words. And when we use those words, we have images that that are associated with those words. Like awesome. We see something and we say awesome. Or we're talking to someone and we say yes, and, and that was awesome. And we have this mental picture of what it is that we're talking about that's awesome. And so when we say God is awesome... Where do we, what's the picture that comes to mind? It's something this side of heaven. Our awesome, what we think is awesome, is so less than the awesome that God is. You know, everything that I'm sharing with you is good information to know, it's true information. And it's always good to know the truth. But the problem with this information alone is that it's, it is insufficient to keep us out of hell. If someone is heading over a cliff, for instance, it makes little sense. Think about this. It makes little sense to hand him a pictorial display of what will happen when he goes over and crashes onto the rocks below. This is what you're going to look like when you hit the bottom. It's not pretty. We can receive this information about God's severity. We can note it as Paul tells us to do. And we can explore and understand the biblical teaching of God's wrath, the eternal conscious torment of hell, and how we all deserve both of them. But this information is not sufficient for us to glorify God. Have you ever watched a court proceeding and seen the judge slam down his gavel and say, I sentence you to die by legal injection and and, and heard the, the convicted party go, yeah, I love you, judge. No, you haven't and I and, and neither have I. We don't see that because no one who's guilty wants justice. They want mercy. Knowledge of it and belief in hell, as important as they are, are unable to create worshipers, true worshipers. Yet, misunderstanding this reality is historically how the doctrine of hell has been abused and misused by so many in the name of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot scare anyone into heaven, church. Heaven is not a place for those who are afraid of hell. Let me share that again. Heaven is not a place for those who are afraid of hell. It's a place for those who love God and live to glorify him. It's not a place for those who are afraid of hell. You can scare people into coming to to church. You can scare people into trying to be good. You can scare people into giving money. You can scare um, even some people into walking down um, this aisle and pray a, a certain prayer. But you cannot scare people into loving God. You just can't do it. You can scare them into moral acts of goodness. 
But that's not salvation. It's not even Christian. Even if you could scare people, it would not be true worship. Because their fear of God would not be shaped by their love for God. Think about that throughout the week. Their fear of God would not be shaped by their love for God. Their fear would be shaped out of fear and not love for God. They would not be attracted to God so much as repulsed by hell. And that's not true worship. To highlight only the width of the gulf, the chasm, is not to bridge it. And so why highlight it at all? Because you can't understand the cross of Christ without understanding the weight of the glory of God and the offense of belittling belittling his name and what the due punishment is for that offense. What Christ did on the cross will not be made real and personal to us until we see that the cross reveals the depth of the offense of our sin. I was thinking, where's Psalms 42 verses 1 and 2 for us? Where's as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where is that man? Where is that woman? Where is the man who in Psalms 27, 4 says, One thing I have desired of the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord. Where is that? Where has that gone? Where is that Romans 8 groaning of the heart for the things of God, both over our fallenness and the fallenness of, our, of the world and our own tendency to defame the God that we love? Where is that? It seems like we're indifferent and unmoved by the realities of, of eternity. We have to feel the weight of God's severity. Because without feeling the weight of his severity, we won't know the weight of his kindness. And we won't be able to worship him and him alone. Worship of him is why we were created. Let's think for a moment of the NFL. I think we all would agree here that the NFL, it is big. I mean, as far as sports are concerned, there's nothing as big as the NFL. And man, the billions and billions of dollars that it produces. All across America, football stadiums are filled with screaming fans, cheering on their favorite football teams, spending all kinds of crazy money that they don't even have to spend. Fans are nervous in their guts, and I'm not joking. They want their team to win so badly, their insides are just turning. With victory comes elation and surfing a thousand websites to read the same article over and over again. Come on, you sports fanatics. You know what I'm talking about. I've done it. And with defeat comes destitution of spirit and days of mourning and moping. Angrily arguing on a blog about who really deserved to win or arguing over an official's botched call. Church, every bit of those affections, every bit of that emotion, and every bit of that passion was given to us by God for God. It wasn't given for football. Where's the nervousness in our guts when we're coming into an assembly of those pursuing God? 
Where is the elation over the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Where is the grief over our sins? Where is it? Well, it's on football. It's on basketball. It's on romance. It's on material things. It's on the gym. It's on tweeting and Facebooking and blogging and whatever else you do. Are we really going to believe we're not worthy of of hell, the place where shalom is absent? We're so into worshiping ourselves to self-glory. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. There's an eternal separation. It's real. Thank God for his response to all our sin. I am so grateful. The wrath-absorbing cross of Jesus Christ. That's good news, church. But we really can't begin to even begin to appreciate the depth, the width, the height of this amazing good news if we don't understand the bad news. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. How many times has I been sharing the good news with somebody And every time I share the good news, I have to share the bad news so they can really appreciate the good news. How many times over the years have I heard this? You believe that? That's foolishness. No wonder Christians got this label. You're dumb. You're unintelligent. I've had those things spoken to me. I know I'm not alone. Church, you and I cannot make anyone understand the gospel. It is possible to be so opposed to a truth in your heart that it becomes nothing but foolishness in your head. In fact, many behavioral psychologists have shown that we are all prone not to see what we don't want to see. And just as the will can dictate that we see selectively only what we want to see, so the will can also Um, dictate that we understand selectively. If we oppose a truth strongly enough, our will can create an intellectual atmosphere that makes understanding that truth virtually impossible. And that blindness, there's a power at work. It's a demonic power. In fact, Paul talks about this. Those who are blind from the gospel, the good news, they're blinded by the God of this age. This reality reveals the importance of the work of the Holy Spirit in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The true gospel cannot be shared apart from the person and power of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential. The Holy Spirit can remove the deep opposition to the truth and open the mind to consider the truth of the gospel honestly. 
In fact, Jesus said in John 16, 8, speaking of the Holy Spirit, and when he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Church, we have to be careful. There's been a paradigm of ministry shift in the church today, especially in the Western world, especially in America, where where ministry, and even what we call the gospel, it touches people's emotions, And it moves people emotionally, but it doesn't bring any transformation of life because the way that the ministry is being approached and the way that the gospel is being communicated is being approached and communicated more with the goal of touching someone emotionally and not reaching deep down into their soul where real life change takes place. And the true gospel doesn't just touch somebody's emotions. It doesn't stop there. It goes deeper and touches and reaches someone's human soul. And that's where real life transformation takes place. Oh, how the true gospel is needed. Back in the summer, I shared about these two young Mormon men. How many remember They came to the church one day. I was leaving to go up to a funeral home and to be with a family who was going to see their their deceased loved one for the very first time. And and I was in a hurry because I wanted to get there before the family arrived. So I would be there with them, and they wanted me there. And so as I was leaving the doors here on the north side of the church, I saw these two young men, Mormon, I knew because they had their tags, and um, I said, hello, can I help you? And shook their hands and said, yes, we're wanting to meet with the pastor. And I says, well, I'm the pastor. Oh, great. We're wondering if there's any serving opportunities here at the church. We're on a two-year mission, and um, we'd like to be able to, to serve. And if there's any serving opportunities you have for us, we would be happy to serve in those ministries. And I said, you know, unfortunately... I need to get to a funeral home before this family arrives, and I really don't want to be late, but I also want to talk to you. Can you give me your your name and your contact information? They actually had a business card, and they gave it to me. You know, long story short, um, since that time that we've met um, originally, I've sat down with them three other times. In fact, I was with them yesterday, and it's been amazing. In fact, when I was preparing, I was going to have Brother Jim be there with me, and, and I was really getting myself prepared and studying everything that they believe, and I had my, I had my sheet out, and I'm writing all this stuff down, and I have, my, I have scriptures from the Bible that I'm going to just refute, and boy, I'm just going to shred their false doctrine, and the Holy Spirit said, throw it all away. And I know when he speaks to me. I threw it away. <laughs> in the trash. You know, when I sat down with them, I sat down with my Bible, and we had an amazing conversation, and we've been having an ongoing conversation. I shared with them, my goal is not to debate you, to challenge you, or to even change you, but to have a conversation with you about faith, about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I told them, not, just, not yesterday, but the week before, how I am convinced that when I met you that day, that God orders my steps every day. 
I might have a, a day scheduler, but God orders my day. You were not on my calendar, but you were on God's calendar. And that our connection was a divine connection. And God has something eternal and lasting in mind. And I says, with that thought, I'd like to have a conversation. And we just began to have a, a, a wonderful conversation. And I was asking them questions about what they believe. And, and so he was sharing, and as he was sharing, the Holy Spirit would just bring a verse to mind. And they had with them all their sacred writings. They also had with them the King James 1611 version of the Bible. And so every time the Holy Spirit would, would just bring a scripture to mind based on what we were talking about, I'd say, hey, hey, Nathan, would you look this up and read it from the King James Bible? Hey, Seth, would you look this up and, and read this from the King James Bible? Read it out loud. And they would read. And this continued to go on throughout our conversation. In fact, Nathan goes, boy, you really know this Bible. And I said, Nathan, I want you to know how I was going to approach this. And I told them what I told you and how I crumbled it up and threw it out. And I says, these scriptures that, that I'm asking you to turn to, the Holy Spirit is just bringing them to my mind as we're talking, as we're having this conversation. We need the Holy Spirit. You know, at one point in that, in that, in that meeting as we were talking, I could tell that he did not have assurance the assurance of salvation of heaven. And I said, Nate, it doesn't look like, I get the sense that you don't have this assurance. And he said to me, you can't. And why can't you? And then he began to share with these covenants that they have to make, and he wasn't sure if he'd be faithful to these covenants. And so the Holy Spirit just began to just bring all kinds of assurance, hope, scriptures, Nate, read this one. Nate, read this one. Nate, read this one. Wow, I need to really look at this more. You really got me thinking. That's the Holy Spirit, church. That's the Holy Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit. And so we were going to meet um, again. And it was, I was made known that this Tuesday, the lead guy that I've really been spending a lot of time with, they're relocating him. I want you to pray. He's been on a two-year mission, and his two years is here. He's got two months left, and they're going to relocate him. I didn't ask him why, but let's pray for him. Some soul, some water, but God brings the increase. Amen? I prayed for him in my office yesterday afternoon. And I prayed. And I said, God, I pray that your truth, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, would be made so real, so personal, and so life-changing to my friend. He gave me a gift before he left the Book of Mormon. <laughs> I thanked him for it. But inside that was a card. 
He said, Pastor Pat, thank you so much for inviting us to have such an inspiring discussion about the doctrine of Christ. We have felt your testimony of Jesus Christ. That's powerful, church. I don't share that to draw any attention to me, but to the Holy Spirit. Because this gospel cannot, the true gospel cannot be communicated apart from the person and power and work of the Holy Spirit. Amen? The true gospel requires the work of the Holy Spirit. What is the gospel as I close this morning? Could you put it on the screen? Is anyone up there? Can we put this on the screen? Write this somewhere on your outline. What is the gospel? It is the Holy Spirit revealing to sinners the bad news of what they deserve, the severity of God, and revealing to sinners the good news of receiving what they do not deserve, the kindness of God. Only the Holy Spirit can reveal such eternal life-transforming truth. Would you join me standing here this morning? I have one simple question. Have you received by faith the kindness of God? Have you received by faith the kindness of God? If you haven't received by faith the kindness of God, and today, before you leave this sanctuary, you want to receive by faith the kindness of God. Revealed to us through the cross of Christ. As Brother Joe leads us in this closing song, I invite you to come forward. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to pray with you. And I'd love to bless you with a Bible.